Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 30 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined, as I often am, uh, by my colleague, <laughs> John Goodall. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. That was I was fantastic. working on that. Well I done. That. I was working on that all week, John. Uh, for... that, that, that really caught me off guard. That was great. Well, normally what happens there is I say, as always, and it started to offend John, he started to feel a bit like part of the furniture. So I've been working on a new, some new words to introduce him. So, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I think I've caught you off guard. How are you doing this week, John? I'm OK. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Um, you know, can't complain. Good. And uh, we're also joined today by another very special guest uh, from the AWS Community Builder Program, Davide De Paulis. Uh, how are you doing today, Davide? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, John, for having me here. I'm super excited to, to be part of your episode today. Great. And uh, tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do for a living? Where are you based, etc.? Yeah, I'm, I come, um, I'm Italian. I come from Milan, uh, but I'm living in Hamburg um, since 2013 when I joined Good Game Studios. Uh, I've been working in software engineering, uh, building websites initially and rich internet application um, at the beginning, and then uh, 10 years ago, I moved to Hamburg to start my uh, career in the gaming industry uh, as a mobile developer. And since then, lots of change. I stayed in the same company, but I changed many, many teams and many pro different projects. I haven't built that many game features. I was mostly on application and um, APIs or tools for the company, for other studios. And uh, in the last few years, I've been mostly working with serverless and uh, leading a team um, of full stack developer building uh, cool stuff uh, with AWS. Nice. So and you're in the uh, are you in the serverless category of the community? Yes. Builder? Yes, I am in the serverless category. Uh, I I blog about my serverless journey uh, and my leadership um, experiences uh, with my with my team. And yeah, you can find me on, on, on Dev2. Uh, this is where I blog. And yeah, and I'm part of this uh, AWS Community Builder um, program, which is awesome. I, I'm in the second year right now, and I really love it because it's exposing oh, me so... to so many opportunities and getting to know awesome people. So you've got the backpack, have you? Yes. Uh, yeah, John and I are looking forward to the backpack. Uh, there's a bit of a story behind this. We've talked about it on the podcast a couple of times. John's in his first year. I'm in my first year for the second time because I didn't get renewed. So uh, oh. I've got two sets of year one swag, uh, but no year two swag. So uh, I'm hoping to go into my third year in the Community Builder program as a year two for the first time, if that's not a bit confusing. But uh, yeah, yeah. So I've I'm not... The backpack is awesome, and the swags that you get for as a community builder are awesome. Like, look at this! Like, I, oh, I don't have that. that. <laughs> no, I don't I have do. that. Yeah, John's do. got one of those, but I only got I only got this one. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah, but you've got two of them. So <laughs> I have got two. I'm not going to show you the second one because it's holding something up in the background. So <laughs> there will be a big crash if I show you the second one. But I have got my. Uh, I've always got my two. Uh, community builder hats uh, mm -hmm. on uh, there. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> is it black or gray? No, no, it's uh, blue, navy blue, I think. Uh -huh, blue. Nice. I have the green one, gray one. Oh. oh, I didn't even know there was a gray one. Now there's more <laughs> swag for me to aspire to. So. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, uh, we're not here to talk about community builder swag. Um, if you're uh, new to the podcast, um, uh, every week I collate a um, list of AWS news, which I share uh, via uh, the uh, weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. Uh, and then John and I pick a subset of the articles from the newsletter uh, that we'd like to talk about in a little bit more detail uh, with our guests. Uh, so we've got five such articles this week to talk about. And the first one um, is about how AWS have launched the first international interactive learning center in uh, in Cape Town. So it's called the uh, AWS Skills Center. Now, when I first read this article, I thought it was the first one ever, but it's not. It's the first international one, meaning it's the first one outside of the US. So uh, when I drilled a little deeper into the article, uh, I did find out they've got one in Seattle already and somewhere else, Virginia, I think it was, um, off the top of my head. That's it, Arlington, yeah, Arlington, Virginia, yeah. Um, but uh, this is the first one of these uh, that they've done outside of uh, the US in Cape Town. And uh, yeah, it looks like quite a major investment, really. Um, it's kind of like a... I would almost describe it as a permanent trade show, I guess. <laughs> so it's kind of like the stands that you might see at a trade show. Um, but yeah, go on, John. You obviously wanted to jump in there and disagree with me, as you yeah, often do. Yeah, I mean, I'm, well, that's why I'm here. Um, yeah. it, it, permanent <laughs> trade show, I think, is selling it a little bit short. Yeah, it's the first one outside of the States. And obviously, they've done the first two in probably off the back of existing offices because they've got big presences in Seattle and Arlington because you know they do so they'll probably just tack them into offices that they already had this one is i think probably the first standalone one um a permanent trade show i think is is selling it a little bit short but it's if you think of it more like a summit which is not a normal trade show it's a bit trade showy at, at times but say the the london summit or whatever they call it a learning conference and that's kind of more what this is so yes, it's an Amazon trade show, but it's not what a non-cloud person would refer to as a trade show, which is just halls and halls of people hocking rubbish. Um, interesting, I think, that they picked Cape Town. I, I'm not quite sure why they have, but I suppose there's quite a lot of, of entrenched training providers and what have you in kind of Europe, and Cape Town is part of the EMEA region, which is why you can see one of the people that opened it was um, the lady that ran the keynote at the London summit, who is the MD or CEO or VP or whatever acronym of EMEA for AWS. So it's clearly something that they care about, clearly something that they feel really strongly because they've flown down some senior people and they've got some fairly important locals in there too. What are your thoughts on this one, Davida? I, I think that opening this learning center in, in in south africa it's it's a great opportunity for the um, empowerment of the local community or the south african community and it's um, probably they are really trying to like probably in europe it would have been too easy or too hard to to open one and there they are targeting a different different market different community and it's also very i i think it's a great opportunity for the people uh, over there um, People that wants to have uh, that might not have access to this, this type of education, or to or to people that want to explore the possibility of the cloud and figure out if uh, it could be something for them. I mean, there there are two aspects. It's not only a trade show. Uh, it, it, or, or, or it's an exhibition to show the capabilities of uh, of the cloud, and it's also a training center where people can for free. 
uh, have foundational uh, training and support in building their career. So I think it, it's a very great thing to, to have. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to have something like this in Europe. While digging in the article, I, I found out that there are also pop-up locations and one was uh, just close in Manchester. So I really, really, like, I was in the summit in Berlin and it was an amazing experience. I would really like to see a training center like that. Yeah, I think what's good about it is it, it's it's aimed at complete novices, I guess, complete beginners. So I guess the trade show aspect that I was alluding to was these kind of permanent exhibitions they've got of or, or exhibits that they've got um, of kind of cloud use cases. Um, because you know a lot of people have heard of the cloud, but a lot of, most of them won't really understand what the cloud actually is or does. Um, you know people experience it in their day-to-day -day lives for uploading photos and things like that. But obviously it's so much more. Um, and, uh, you know, what, this gives people an opportunity to understand what the different areas of, of cloud computing are uh, and where they may be able to kind of progress their career and get involved. Um, and I think you can, you can go right through to um, become cloud practitioner certified in this place. Is that, is that right? Um, it looks like they've got free and paid training in there, so it makes sense that they run certs, or at least cert workshops and, and what have you, because they do at the summit, and that's kind of the vibe that I'm getting from this, is it's just a, a permanent summit-esque setup that's a lot more focused on the training, because, yeah, there's loads of training at the summit, there's a load of other stuff too, so it feels like they've just taken that and gone, let's just do more training, because they do have this other target of training X number of million, bit like 29 million, weird number, of people in the cloud by 2020-something or other. I forget. The Five. 2025. I'm just looking at that part of the article right now. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, there's another interesting number in here that uh, there's a surge in demand for individuals with these skills, creating approximately 2.6 million jobs by 2027. Um, that's uh, that's a lot of jobs going to be created, and we're struggling to fill the uh, the kind of open jobs now. Um, so I think it's really important to be uh, getting uh, getting young people interested in the cloud, getting career changes interested in the cloud, which I guess is what a centre like this is going to be really effective at. Yeah, I mean. I don't know whether the center makes a difference to kind of the the segments, if you like, that are going to pick up the training because it's the sort of thing that, I don't know, a careers day will go, go over there, go, 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 and, and they'll point at it and say, go have a wander around. Um, and a career changer has to be quite a lot more deliberate about what they're doing because either they've deliberately packed in work and that they're surviving on whatever savings they may or may not have, um, or they're trying to fit it in around existing employment. So... I don't know that in-person is going to be better for a career changer, but it's certainly going to be better for early careers because it you can come straight out of whatever university course you happen to have done, theology, it's nothing to do with the cloud, and just go straight into more classroom-based training, and that's kind of the environment that you're still used to. So I think it's going to be better for earlier career than changers, but certainly the um, exhibition side of things is going to be good for just everybody. Yeah, and it's perhaps a bit more accessible than a full-on trade show because they do, they can be quite intimidating, especially if you're an early state in the early stages of your career. You know, you got to walk into a, a huge warehouse with fifty thousand people in there. It's uh, <laughs> um, you know, this is perhaps a little bit more accessible. Anyway, let's uh, let's move on from that article and let's talk 
techie. Um, so the next article is an article on DevOps.com um, about uh, two services on AWS for running your containers, ECS, which is Elastic Container Service, and EKS, Elastic Kubernetes Service. And this article highlights five key differences and how you might go about choosing uh, between one and the other. So, um, John, tell us a bit about this. So let's just do, in the usual fashion, a couple of definitions for folk that might not be aware. ECS runs Docker, basically. It's Amazon's Amazon AWS's version of running Docker in a clustered manner. You can think of it kind of like Docker Swarm, but with Amazon's kind of flavoring on top of it. EKS is just Amazon running Kubernetes clusters for you. Right. If you're familiar with Kubernetes, you'd be familiar with this. There's some fairly nice quality of life features baked into EKS that allow your Kubernetes config files to create things like load balancers to talk to services and expose ports and all that. So you don't have to kind of do all of that the hard way. Um, but that's kind of it. It's a lot more here's a service and we're running it for you rather than here's our take on what the service should be. ECS is a lot older than EKS because AWS for a long time held off on running Kubernetes. I don't know why, because um, for a while you could go to Google only and then they open sourced it. I think Azure got there before AWS did. And then they finally pulled their finger out and went, oh, right, we'll run Kubernetes for you. Fine. Um, it's Realistically, that's it, though. The key difference. One's Kubernetes and one isn't. <laughs> I mean, the platform integration is a fun one because... Um, is it easier to integrate ECS with the rest of the platform? I would argue maybe, but probably not anymore. Yes, you can do cloud formation to deploy to ECS, but you probably shouldn't. It, like That's an awful way of doing it versus using kubectl and all those kinds of things. Scalability is a bit of a nonsense because they both scale equally. I suppose with ECS, you've got to do a bit less work, but they scale equally. Security... Um, yeah, okay, Kubernetes has its own security model, or you can use IAM instead if you like, and honestly, that's the recommendation. Pricing models, much for muchness, because you pay either for the servers or for the compute time if you use Fargate. The complexity, that's kind of where ECS gets a little bit easier, because it's easier if you've never used either of them. Kubernetes is, is a bit to get your head around, but if you've used Kubernetes before, then it's kind of neither here nor there, to be really honest. Um and I think it says it in the in the um, conclusion. Choose the one that you're already familiar with. That's kind of it. You know, if you're already running workloads on Kubernetes or you've used it before, one you have my sympathies because that's horrible. But pick EKS. Other than that, pick ECS. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that that pretty sums up the the, the article. I, I share the same sentiment about EKS uh, and ECS. I, I, I don't have experience with EKS uh, at all, with Kubernetes. Uh, I had, I, as I said, I'm more leaning towards serverless, uh, everything serverless. So I, but I work on a couple of projects with ECS. One was running the launch type uh, AC2 and, and the most recent one with Fargate, which I love even more uh, because it's the serverless way uh, for, for ECS. So honestly, I, I don't know why one should choose EKS unless uh, it's already running something um, on, on Kubernetes because uh, this, the learning curve for Kubernetes is pretty steep. And uh, if you have application running on Kubernetes on-premise on and you want to transition to the cloud, that's the best uh, case uh, use case or scenario for EKS. 
and then I will transition to something else. But if you have the, the skill set and the knowledge in the team, then AKS is the, is, is the choice. Yeah, I mean, my experience with EKS was I joined a team who were running things in Docker. We want to use Kubernetes. Are you sure about that? Yes, we're using Kubernetes. All right, we'll put it in EKS. Get it all live, get it all running. You know that the run cost for this is is obscene, right? And it's not doing anything. Can we just build it all in Lambdas instead? Yeah, all right then. A month of dev time later, and we t- torn down the Kubernetes thing that I spent three months building because it costs too much to run. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think uh, we've done that one to death. It's uh, pretty straightforward <laughs> anyway. So, uh, you know. Yeah, one's Kubernetes and one isn't. Use the one that yeah, isn't yeah, Kubernetes yeah. if you value if, your sanity. If you want to use Kubernetes, use EKS. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's move on to a little bit more serverless. Um, we've got an article here from The Guardian. Uh, it's actually on The Guardian website um, about their migration story to Aurora serverless. Um, so, uh, They've gone from running their database uh, on an EC2 instance uh, through the various different um, Aurora um, offerings. Um, and uh, it's a bit of a war story, really, on how they've sort of gone through the various different things and the, uh, you know, the, the issues that they've experienced um, along the way. So uh, what would you like to say about this one, John? It's an interesting one because you think servers and you think databases, not natural bedfellows. And I wanted to pick the Guardian one because we've never had an article from the Guardian before. And these big newspapers are usually a, a, a really weird mix of bleeding edge tech and really old stuff that they just have to keep running. Um, so I thought it was just going to be an interesting kind of mix. And this kind of proves that out because the application that was sitting on top of the database or that's querying the database is something they're called Lurch. It's like an internal search engine for journalists. Um, it's, you know, cut down version of Google, I guess, that just shows them a lot better results of what they're looking for. So that um, validating things that happen, getting quotes, whatever, it's a lot faster than going around and doing it the old fashioned way, Googling, talking to people. And they've gone through various phases of this. And they've done the logical thing. They've done RDS Postgres, because obviously you use Postgres. It's much better for I.O. Then they've gone um, to more serverless, more serverless, more serverless. And eventually they've ended up with Aurora serverless, right? Because they went, start with RDS, then move to Aurora, then Aurora serverless, then more Aurora serverless. And they've kind of gone up and down the tech stack and moved around quite a whole bunch. And it was really quite an interesting read. A couple of key takeaways on this one, of course, is uh, try not to put your databases on burstable instances because that will cause you problems. Unless you're in dev, don't use a T instance for databases because it's just going to, you're going to have a bad time. Um, and their other takeaway, I guess, which is a very interesting one if, if AWS, Google, Azure, whoever, any service provider is building a V2 of a service, don't migrate to the V1 while they're building V2 if they've publicized that they're doing that because there was clearly a problem that they recognized and they're trying to solve because you're probably going to hit that problem. So, yeah, it was an interesting one. I did also find it interesting that they uh, spoke a couple of times around uh, not doing this instead of delivering value and delivering features and all the rest of it. I do think this delivered value, but I think they probably could have just done, and arguably it's what I would have done, even as a serverless community builder and generally a fan of serverless, I'd have just turned the instance type up on Postgres and moved on with my life, personally. Yeah, with a couple of years of development on this migration, it would have probably brought more value. 
Yeah, and, and the the actual cost of running this thing are pretty trivial anyway. They're listed at the end, so uh, uh, they've gone from forty nine dollars fifty a month using the RDS Postgres up to a whopping two hundred and fifty dollars and seventy cents, uh, and they've managed to bring that back down to two hundred dollars again. So it's does seem like quite a lot of effort <laughs> involved to uh, save some fairly trivial amounts of money. But, um, you know, it, it gives us a good story nonetheless. Um, but uh, do you have any more thoughts on this one, Davida? Uh, being a serverless, you know, do, do you know is, is serverless databases your thing or are you more on the kind of functions side of serverless? Um, no, I we definitely build a serverless application which rely mostly on Dynamo. I, prefer Dynamo for, for most of our application. Um, it, we had a project where we use Aurora serverless V1. Um, at that time, V2 did not exist yet. So we didn't, <laughs> uh, we didn't make the same mistake. But it was nice. It was interesting to read this article because uh, a couple of pain points we, we experienced um, as well, um, and namely the, um, the auto-pause functionality which is awesome. It's one of the main reasons to move from Aurora to Aurora serverless because you say, hey, I'm, my application, it's not used all the time. In, in our case, it was an internal application used by colleagues from another department only in weekdays, only on working hours. So we said, it's perfect. Uh, but then we realized, as they did, uh, that if you go to zero in production, then when there is the first call, you can wait like 15, 20 seconds. And this is not really nice. Even if the audience, if the target is, is your internal, um, uh, is, is your company. So for, for the staging environment and the dev environment, it was perfect. But for production, we had to keep the, the, the ACU to two, which is the minimum, um, and spend some money even if you are not using it. Um, we didn't move to to V2 uh, because we I changed team and and the project is still running and everybody's happy with that. Uh, but uh, with the V2, they changed the the increments that you can uh, that that the system scales, and you don't need you don't need to to set the the two minimum AC, ACU, but you can have only 0 0.5, which is still not serverless, but it's better it's better than two. It's a bit like uh, it's a bit like me giving up beer but still drinking the zero point fives. It's not actually <laughs> alcohol free, but it says on the label it's alcohol free. So you know <laughs> I'm going to take that as alcohol free. So you know we might as well, it says on the label that this is serverless, so we can call it serverless. <laughs> exactly. I think they're calling it serverless on the grounds, and I mean I've got a talk coming up, and I'll kind of mention this point that you're not billed for the server's existence; you're billed based on the capacity units. But you have to have a minimum capacity unit, which means you're paying for something to exist so it's kind of this weird gray area and honestly for me the auto pause thing is a funny one because yes auto pause is a perfect work, uh, use case for office hours only workloads but so is the ec2 instant scheduler that works with rds and that costs like five dollars a month to run so just install that maybe like I, I'm a surplus fanboy through and through, but this ain't it, Chief. This ain't it. There was well, also actually I'll, an oh, go on, carry on. 
There was there also, and it's only a little sideline, but there was also an interesting thing on their, that they spoke about with their IOPS on GP2 versus provisioned IOPS and GP3 and all the rest of it. And the takeaway from that, and they didn't mention this, but the takeaway from that is just use GP3 these days. It didn't exist when they were doing it, but just use GP3 because it's better than GP2 and it's cheaper than IO, their provisioned IOPS because it's decoupled the IOPS from the storage whilst not being horrifically expensive. So just use GP3. But what the, one of the things we used to do back in, in the day with GP2 was just make the disk bigger because then you get some more IOPS, even if you didn't need it I for mean, the data storage. And they seemed to jump straight from, you know... No, they did the both. Size they of, did both. Oh, did they? Okay. I thought they went... They, they sized up a bit and IOPS. then changed. It's yeah. a funny one, right? Because with GP2, there was a maximum IOPS that you could have, no matter how big the disk was, and that's 3,000. Uh, provisioned IOPS and GP3, you can go all the way up to, I think, about 16,000. So I think they did increase the uh, disc a bit, and then it kind of wasn't enough anyway, so they had to change. Well, there we go. Uh, a, a very uh, interesting serverless, not quite serverless, migration war story. So uh, let's move on from that article um, and talk a little bit about um, results, because it's been uh, quarterly results time recently. So lots of articles um, all about uh, doom and gloom, growth is slowing, uh, you know, but AWS is still the market leader. So that's what the next couple of articles are going to talk about. Uh, so the first one uh, is on uh, the Acceleration Economy website. And it's entitled AWS, Five Reasons to Love It Despite Growth Slowdown. So uh, this uh, 90 or 80, $90 billion company has only grown 12% in the last quarter. Uh, so it's, uh, isn't, you know, isn't that terrible? We should all give up and do something else. But what I liked was the, uh, the list of uh, companies at the start of this article uh, that was comparing AWS to. Uh, there's a little quiz from this list of a dozen global corporations I've listed in random order. Pick the one with the highest annual revenue. And you've got companies like Procter & Gamble, Siemens, Boeing, Disney, uh, Amazon Web Services, Citigroup, T-Mobile, Sony, Wells Fargo, Hitachi, and Nissan. So there's some huge global corporates there. And of course, the answer is AWS is the biggest one in that list. And uh, they've only actually been around for, uh, is it 17 years, I think? so. Uh, yeah, Officially, versus... yeah. There's been yeah. like some outlier services and things, but as, a, as an entity, it's 17 years. But compared to the likes of Sony and uh, Wells Disney. Fargo, uh, Disney, Disney, yeah, who've been around for uh, you know, well, Disney's like a century old. Yeah, yeah. Wells Fargo is probably more than that. Um, Nissan, I would imagine, is also uh, you know a similar sort of age. Um, so uh, yeah, for AWS to have achieved that growth in seventeen years. Uh, and to be still growing. I don't think it's all doom and gloom. Um, but uh, should we go on to some of the reasons? Well, that was the first reason uh, <laughs> why you should uh, continue to love AWS, just because they've got so big so quickly uh, and they're still here. Um, but uh, do you want to talk about some of the others? I mean, yeah, I'll just touch on that point a little bit more, though, because the article itself does say, because um, they've listed the rest of the non-cloud companies in that list, they're non-cloud, um, AWS is still growing faster than non-cloud. They're just not growing as fast as other cloud companies because they grow at these just bonkers rates up in the rarefied atmosphere of cloud. Um, so, yeah, back on planet Earth, what is it, whatever it was, 12% growth, most companies would kill for that. So, yeah. On an 80 billion business. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a smaller percentage of a very big number compared with their mainstream competitors. So I don't think it's a problem particularly. 
Um, and then the only other one I wanted to pull out is uh, point three, leveraging am- the Amazon fixation on delighting customers. Basically, this is the first leadership principle is is um, wow the customer or delight the customer, whatever the actual wording is. It's a relentless obsession on customer, right? And that's absolutely something that AWS have, gen- have demonstrated time and time and time and time and time and time again. I can say time and quite a few more times. But they they just have in a way that I don't think either of the other two major cloud providers have done. I mean, Google being the prime example of just killing services. AWS has done that like three times total. What are your thoughts on this one, David? Anything you wanted to pull out of the uh, the article? Yeah, I mean, this 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 article was more on the business analysis. It's not really my my cup of tea. Um, I think that I have many reasons to love AWS, besides <laughs> being the, the ni- a ninety billion. Uh, 12% growth rate company. Um, what I really like are, are these uh, leadership principles. So the first is the customer fixation and also the invent and simplify is another of the, the leadership principle. And we see sometimes um, it's not always um, always a good thing. It's probably too much, but AWS is always inventing or reinventing new services uh, and we see that every year we have overlapping systems overlapping uh, offering uh, which makes the life of solution architect and technical leader a little bit uh, harder because you never know okay what should i use like secret manager or parameter store or this <laughs> this offering neptune uh, or aurora serverless uh, so that ECS or probably... EKS. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, this focus on innovating and reinventing can bite back, but um, I really love all the principles, uh, all the leadership principles are something that I really try to follow on my daily leadership uh, efforts. So insist been... on higher standard. Have you been for an interview at AWS? <laughs> No, because <laughs> uh, you have to learn all the principles for that. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh... And they're constantly adding new ones, so it gets harder. Oh, they've only added a couple, haven't they? I mean, they went from like nine to about 14 now, so they just keep adding new ones yeah. every so often. Yeah, that's more fingers and thumbs than you've got. How are you going to start counting on your toes? You have to go on for toes as well, yeah. So. Uh... <laughs> Anyway, let's uh, skip on to the final article. So uh, we have plenty of reasons to love AWS. Um, uh, this one is uh, is another commercial article based on the recent um, results and earnings call with with uh, with AWS. Uh, and uh, despite the growth slowdown, this one's pointing out the fact that uh, AWS is still far ahead of the the rest of the pack um, in in terms of uh, cloud market share uh, of thirty two percent. So AWS's market share has gone down uh, from 34% a year ago to 32%, but they're still far and away in the lead. So, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on on this one, John? I mean, just a couple of things real quick. It's Their share of the pie has gone down, but the pie has gotten bigger. So it's not like they've shrunk. They've just not grown as much as everybody else has. Cool. Um, you know, if you added up Azure and Google Cloud shares together, they'd be just about in line with AWS. So they're enormous, right? And the other thing, it talks about um, drivers for the infrastructure because that's absolutely where AWS is winning this race. It's always in the infrastructure space rather than like the networking, the big data and the AI and whatever. It's in the infrastructure space. Is Amazon's Graviton processors account for half of all ARM cores. Just, what? <laughs> that's mental. 
So yeah, that, five, it's just that one. Just a nice, nice big number there to finish. Yep, it's five percent of the uh, world's CPU market, I think, isn't it? Um, if yeah. my mental arithmetic is serving me correctly, it, it's about there. Yeah, right. this is this is a CPU architecture that's not new. ARM has been around for ages, and they've been running on GPUs for ages. But in the compute space, they're newish. You know, you've only seen Apple Silicon was probably the first one. We're only on Gen two of that. Um, Graviton's only on Gen 3, and already Graviton has taken half of the total ARM market, and ARM is taking a not small percentage of the CPU market. So it's it's interesting times. Absolutely. Anything to add on that one, Davida? No, on that on that one, not not that much. I I can only say that when the Graviton were launched on Lambda, we immediately tried them out. And in some cases, in most of the cases, it proved uh, cheaper and faster. In a couple of uh, applications that we had, we were surprised that they weren't. So uh, I can only subscribe to what uh, is said in, in one, uh, at the end of the article that you should really um, try them out and test, run some tests in parallel and see if it really fits and um, brings value and, and yeah. optimization. Horses for courses, as they say. Uh, these things are not right for everyone, but uh, you know it's great to see the growth there nonetheless. Well, that brings us to the end of our time uh, for this week, guys. So uh, that was uh, season two, episode thirty of Logicast. Uh, just want to offer my thanks, Davida, uh, for coming on as our guest. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, I'm not going to thank you, John, because, uh, you know, <laughs> you're here every week. So uh, hopefully that uh, you know, goes without saying. Uh, so um, if um, you, you can download uh, the Logicast podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're also now live on YouTube. We'll be sharing Davida's uh, socials in the show notes. Show notes. Uh, so if you'd like to follow him, read his blog posts, etc. Uh, just check the show notes for that information. And uh, we'll be back next week uh, with a... No, no, we won't. We're not here next week because I'm going on holiday. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, with a, another episode of Logicast. So thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Cheers. <laughs>